What's up, everybody? Jen, ex-dividend investor here. Did you know that the oil industry helped stop the killing of whales and helped end the whaling industry in the 1800s? I didn't. Give me a thumbs up if you love whales or Moby Dick. Did you also know that there is still an industry today that uses whale oil? Can you guess which one? Don't believe me? Well, let me tell you all about it after my intro, or jump right to it based on the timestamps. Today, in my fourth stock reveal video, I'll be doing an analysis of Chevron, which is my 22nd largest stock by market value in my dividend portfolio. After this, I've got 21 more reveals to go until my entire portfolio is shown. Also, make sure to check out the portfolio section of this video because I share my first dividends received since I started these reveal videos, and it's from Pfizer. I also show you how I track dividends in my spreadsheet, something you haven't seen before. Going forward, I'll start sharing dividends received for Disney, Pfizer, Home Depot, Chevron, and whatever other stocks I've revealed until I start doing monthly portfolio updates listing all the dividends I've received and any buys or sells that I've done. As I said in my channel intro, my primary goal is to create a set of fun, educational, and inspirational videos that my kids can utilize to learn how and why their dad invests in dividends so that someday they can take over managing our nest egg. I also want to share that knowledge with everyone out there because for me, dividend investing is by far, and I do mean by far, the most passive and enjoyable way I've found to build wealth. I also believe it to be the most sustainable and one of the fastest growing over the long term. I feel the best tax advantage investment is often real estate. Triple net leases for commercial real estate is generally far more passive than residential real estate, but neither of those are anywhere as passive as dividends. I also hope to inspire people who are earlier on their dividend and investing journey so that when they see only a few pennies rolling in every month, they will have my tangible experience that shows them what can happen if you invest for decades and remain consistent. My goal isn't to brag in any of these videos as I still have a ton to learn and my portfolio is tiny compared to some out there. But as I've said in my prior videos, the size of your portfolio doesn't matter. What matters is if you are taking actions today to improve your future. That being said, I do feel it is important to be as transparent as I feel comfortable so you know that my skin in the game is real. The lessons I share of what I've learned, the mistakes I've made, etc. are all examples built up over 25 years of investing and that I hope my kids will listen to and leverage. I'm not a financial professional, so you need to make your own investment decisions. The info I present is as accurate as far as I know, but double check for yourself. Thank you for taking time out of your day to watch my videos. I really appreciate the thumbs up, the comments, and especially if you subscribe. It tells me I'm on the right track with providing you some value and entertainment. Buffett once said that basically any attempts to pick the times to buy or sell are a mistake for 99% of the population, and I think that even attempts to pick individual securities is a mistake for people. I quote that because I agree. You may find that strange on a channel that is primarily about single stock dividend investing, but what I truly want is for people to be successful. I think the best strategy is usually just investing in low cost, broad market ETFs like VTI or VU or VTSAX, then ignore what's happening in the world and just keep investing, probably in a Roth. Do that and after a couple decades you should be relatively wealthy, statistically speaking. That's the advice I'll tell my kids to follow if I didn't have a portfolio that I intended for them to eventually manage. So something to think about. 
Finally, I want to call out a few channels that have been doing some shout outs to my channel and others in the community, which I really appreciate. Go check out their channels. I'll put a link in my description below to them. First, Rico Suave Investing has been incredible. He did a great shout out, so I'd like to return the kindness. And I really appreciate YouTube channel owners who have either pinned my comment to their video or even just called out my name during their live streams. All of that really helps us grow. So thank yous go out to Independent Investor, Matt Money, and JMac Investing. Please go check them out. Okay, now on to business. So what does Chevron do? Chevron is an American energy corporation that was spun off of Rockefeller's famous Standard Oil Company and now operates in more than 180 countries. They are involved in oil, natural gas, and geothermal energy industries. Chevron is one of the world's largest oil companies and is 11th on the Fortune 500 list of the top U.S. public corporations and 28th on the Fortune Global 500 list. It produces about 2.9 million barrels of oil and oil equivalents a day. They have reserves of 12.1 billion barrels of oil and oil equivalents. Today I'm going to give you an oil industry overview, then I'll cover their history, financials, leadership, concerns and risks to be aware of, and answer the question if I feel it's a buy, and then I'll go over my portfolio. Please check the timestamp if you want to jump straight to my portfolio. If you've been watching my videos, you've come to learn that I like to immerse myself in all aspects of business I own. So let's first start with an overview of the oil industry. Chevron is one of the big oil super majors. Big oil is a name used to describe the world's six or seven largest publicly traded oil and gas companies, also known as super majors. There are some larger oil companies that are either private or state run, but I'm not including them. The super majors are BP at 124 billion market cap, Chevron Corporation at 223 billion, ExxonMobil at 289 billion, Royal Dutch Shell at 223 billion, Total at 133 billion, and Eni at 109 billion, with ConocoPhillips at 58 billion, sometimes considered a super major. Beyond those, we have some giant oil companies that are state run, including Saudi Aramco, Sinopec in China, and China National Petroleum Corporation. For this video, I'll use ExxonMobil as a competitor we can compare Chevron against. ExxonMobil has a large, diverse asset portfolio and an industry-leading debt-to-equity ratio and has a strong yield on its dividend. Chevron has recently done some amazing strategic negotiating on the Occidental Petroleum Anadarko deal that ended up with Chevron taking a $1 billion profit just to walk away from the deal. And what's better than making huge sums of money for doing little work? So which is better between Chevron and Exxon? Tough call. Let's dig deeper into things. The oil and gas sector employs millions of people and generates trillions of dollars globally each year, which can be a significant amount of some nation's GDP. Thus, those companies exert a lot of influence where they operate. There are three key areas that make up the energy sector, which are facets of its supply chain. One, upstream, two, midstream, and three, downstream. Upstream is exploration and production, also known as E&P. This area of the industry searches for underwater and underground oil and natural gas, as well as drills to get oil and gas. Chevron does this extensively, as well as facets of all three, as they are an integrated player. Midstream is the transportation, storage, and processing of oil and gas to a refinery via pipelines, 
tanker ships, or trucking. And finally, there is downstream, which has three components to it. Number one, the refining of oil and purifying gas to create various products they sell, such as gasoline, or what some people call petrol, kerosene, jet fuel, diesel oil, heating oil, lubricants, waxes, asphalt, and natural gas, amongst others. Number two in downstream is marketing, and number three is the distribution of oil and natural gas to customers. So the closer an oil and gas company is to supplying customers with petroleum products, the further downstream it is said to be in the industry. E&P companies measure oil production in barrels. One barrel, usually abbreviated as BBL, is 42 US gallons or 35 UK gallons. Companies often describe production in terms of BBL per day or BBL per quarter. You will see that the oil industry use M to indicate 1,000, similar to how advertising people use CPM to mean cost per meal or cost per thousand. So 1,000 barrels is usually denoted as MBBL and 1 million barrels is denoted as MMBBL. So if an E&P company reports production of 10 MBBL, it means 10,000 barrels of oil a day. Are you curious who owns oil companies? Do you think a few wealthy ex-oil barons own the shares? It turns out only about 1% of the shares of the supers are held by officers and directors of those companies. So who owns Big Oil? The answer as to whom owns oil companies might be you. I found this in a chart in a blog. As you can see, oil companies are owned primarily by 401k mutual funds, pension funds, IRAs, and asset management companies. So your retirement account might have big oil in it. Now I'll cover a brief history of Chevron, because I love this kind of stuff. In the 1800s, people were using whale oil for lubricants, heating, and most of all to light lamps so they could see at night. So all of these uses helped fuel the rise of the commercial whaling industry. Other than the obvious downside of needing to kill whales to get whale oil, it also smelled terrible as it burned and it couldn't be stored for a long time. But in 1849, a Canadian geologist named Dr. Abraham Gesner figured out how to distill kerosene from petroleum. His method was cheap and easy, and kerosene was much more useful than whale oil because it could be stored for longer periods of time and it didn't smell bad. It was his innovation that sparked the rise of the American oil boom in the 1850s and helped contribute to the decline of the whaling industry. That being said, there's still one industry that uses whale oil. Can you guess which one? I couldn't. It turns out that NASA uses it for space exploration. That's right, the Hubble telescope and Voyager spacecraft have whale oil in them. NASA figured out that sperm whale oil does not freeze even in outer space, so it's an ideal lubricant for space probes. If you knew that, then it's pretty cool that an astronaut is watching this video, or at least a rocket scientist. Now, if I can just corner the market on brain surgeons that watch YouTube, I'll be getting at least 10 views a video. Chevron's company history starts with a group of merchants and explorers that formed Pacific Coast Oil in 1879 after oil was discovered in the Pico Canyon in California. The year was 1876, and everyone was in search of black gold. Prospectors rushed to California, though very few were successful. But Demetrius Schofield and Frederick Taylor of California Star Oil Works, which was a predecessor to Chevron, struck oil in the Pico Canyon portion of the Santa Susana Mountains. California Star Oil Works was then acquired by Pacific Coast Oil in 1879. 
Within a year, Pacific Coast Oil built California's largest and most modern refinery, and it was generating 600 barrels a day. It also launched California's first sea-bearing tanker, the George Loomis, which could ship 6,500 barrels between Ventura and San Francisco. Around the same time, Rockefeller Standard Oil Company established an office in San Francisco. Standard had great product and also better marketing and financial backing, and thus it acquired Pacific Coast Oil. Standard quickly grew by buying land, water tankers, and by building pipelines and refineries. Through the 1800s, most oil was used for oil lamps and kerosene lamps, replacing whale oil. But around 1885, the automobile was invented, and the development of the internal combustion engine exploded the demand of petroleum products for automobiles. To meet the growing market for motor fuels, Standard Oil came up with a revolutionary new sales mechanism, the world's first service station, a.k.a. gas station. Rockefeller Standard Oil was becoming too dominant amongst oil companies. So in 1911, the Supreme Court broke Standard Oil into multiple smaller companies. One of those was Standard Oil of California, or SoCal. In 1948, SoCal and Gulf merged, and the new entity was called Chevron. In 2001, Chevron acquired Texaco to become Chevron Texaco, and in 2005, they rebranded back to Chevron. Chevron isn't one of the world's most powerful brands, per Forbes' 2019 list, but then again, no oil companies were on it. Chevron prides itself on its operational excellence relative to their peers. Here we see that it has been trending as the best in terms of safety and in terms of oil spills, and is a great decreasing trend for loss of containment events, which are events that are unplanned or uncontrolled that lead to inability to control the containment of the oil and gas and such. Here are their corporate and business strategies from the 2018 annual presentation. Some thematic themes you will see is enabling growth, improving their operational efficiencies, and leveraging technology to achieve competitive advantage, all of which is driven by their greatest competitive asset, their people, which they are investing in and empowering. Their strategies are working, as demonstrated in these metrics, which show the growth of their production abilities and reserves. Now let's dive into some financials. Watch my other videos if you want to learn about the metrics, why they matter, what makes a good or bad metric, etc. In this video, I'll assume you know what I already covered. In terms of their breakdown of product sales in thousands of barrels a day, we see that gasoline is still a primary driver of their revenue. So something to be aware of is consider how the world is evolving and how you want to invest. Now there are three main things that I like to look for when I'm analyzing a business. Number one, is the company growing? Number two, can the company cover what it owes in the next year? And number three, do they have too much debt? Let's start with number one. Let's look at six main things I like to review to answer the question, is a company growing? Number one is revenue growing, which is on the income statement. Number two are earnings growing, also on the income statement. Number three is equity growing on the balance sheet. Number four is operating cash flow growing on the cash flow statement. Number five is the dividend growing consistently, usually found on their website. And number six is the stock price growing over a decent period of time. So number one of six is revenue growing. Let's check out their financial metrics using macrotrends.net. And let's compare Chevron to ExxonMobil. For big established companies, like the ones I invest in, while I'd love to see 5 to 10% growth, that sometimes isn't realistic. 
So just seeing positive numbers can still be good. So revenue has been growing significantly since 2016 for both Chevron and Exxon, with Chevron having slightly higher percentage growth, but Exxon having a larger base. Number two of six are earnings growing. Earnings is the net income on the income statement, which is the company's profit after all expenses have been subtracted from total revenue. It's the bottom line number on the income statement. So earnings have been growing. Here's the breakdown of their earnings by operating segment from the Q1 earnings presentation. We see that upstream represents the majority of their earnings. One large source of their earnings comes from the Permian Basin. The Permian Basin is one of the most producing oil and natural gas geologic basins in the United States. It has been delivering resources for our vehicles, our manufacturing, and power generation for our homes for almost a century. It is located in the southwestern region of the U.S., and Chevron owns over 2 million acres there, and both ExxonMobil and Chevron are aiming to get a million barrels of oil equivalent a day by 2024 from this region. In this basin, there is oil and gas found a few hundred feet to miles below the surface. The basin contains one of the world's largest deposits of Permian-aged rocks from an era about 275 million years ago. If you were to visit that location, you would smell sulfur in the air, which some Texans would say is the smell of money. You might also hear someone talk about the oil shale in that region, which is a rock containing kerogen from which liquid hydrocarbons can be produced i.e. shale oil. Number three of six is equity growing. If you want to understand all the interesting nuances about shareholders' equity and reasons why a negative equity can be good or bad, then watch my Home Depot video. For this video, I'll assume you watched it. Shareholders' equity, or a company's net worth, is the amount that would be returned to shareholders if all the company's assets were liquidated and its debts were repaid. So we see that both have posted positive equity trends since 2016, with Exxon leading. Okay, now on to number four of six. Is operating cash flow growing? To answer the question, is a company growing? Let's compare Chevron to ExxonMobil. So we see an overall decent average growth. I like to see around 10% or more. We also see that Exxon has the edge, but Chevron is looking good. For any profitable company that pays dividends, it is very important to generate a healthy cash flow, and both Chevron and Exxon look to be in a good spot with their cash flow. Number five of six is the dividend growing consistently, data which you can manually calculate from their website. Chevron is a dividend aristocrat, so they really value their shareholders and ensure their dividend consistently grows. They have over a 30-year history of consistently increasing their dividend. But they haven't increased their dividend every four quarters. How can that be? How can they be counted as an aristocrat but not have increased their dividend once every four quarters? Isn't four quarters a year? Not only did they not increase it every four quarters, but once they didn't raise their dividend for 10 quarters. How can that be? We'll take a look. Since to calculate a year-over-year -year dividend increase, they only look at the net amounts contributed towards a dividend, Chevron was able to go 10 quarters without increasing their dividend, but each year they still managed to increase. I'd ideally like to see an increase within every four quarters, but they technically have still raised their dividend every year for over 30 years, which is awesome. The reason why they did this was due to the oil downturn in the industry during those years. 
Exxon has an even more incredible history of consistently increasing their dividends at over 35 years. Let's look at more dividend comparisons of Chevron to ExxonMobil. Here we see that Exxon has been increasing their dividend for more than Chevron has for the last few years. As you can see in my spreadsheet, the five-year dividend compound annual growth rate is mediocre for Chevron and a bit better for Exxon. The type of dividend growth I like to see varies by industry. So whereas for energy companies and utilities, I expect to see something around 4%, if I had to genericize, then I want a 7, 8, or 8% for any random company. Finally, number six of six, is the stock price growing over a decent period of time? That helps us answer the question, is the company growing? Let's look at Chevron compared to ExxonMobil and then to the S&P 500. So here we see SPY on the top on the blue line, Chevron in the middle on the black line, and Exxon in purple on the bottom. So they definitely haven't kept up with the S&P 500. And uh, Chevron is just a little bit better than ExxonMobil. I also created a modeling tool to help me easily estimate total returns from an investment over the last 15 years. This lets me understand what it would return and lets me compare those results to other companies and onto the S&P 500. You fill in the ticker and the starting investment that you want, so I decided 10 grand would be what I'd model, though it can be whatever you want, and then I fill in the dividends, since I haven't found a source of dividend history that I trust that I can automatically query on the REB that and that returns accurate dividend history going back 15 years. Then the model will automatically calculate how many shares you would have started out with in 2005 based on whatever amount you put in, how many shares you would end up if you were dripping, what your ending account value would be without a drip, and what your ending account value would be if you dripped, your total returns and percent returns without and with a drip, your total returns compound annual growth rate with a drip versus without. In my model, I'm compounding the returns annually rather than quarterly, so these numbers are a bit light. So this estimate model shows that if you had invested 10 grand into the S&P 500 in 2005, you would have gotten about 80 shares of SPY. If you didn't drip, you'd end at about 28 grand after 15 years. If you did drip, your 10 grand would have ended at $30,547, and your 80 shares would have increased to 101 shares. It shows us that you would have gotten 178.8% return if you hadn't dripped it, and 205.48% return if you had dripped it. And I, I'm not modeling in taxes in this. It also estimates that your total return compound annual growth rate for no drip would have been 7.6%, and your total return compound annual growth rate with drip would have been 8.3%. So let's use this model to see how Chevron would have turned out. It shows us that if we invested 10 grand in 2005 in Chevron and not dripped it, then we would have gotten 170 shares of CVX, and in 2019 that would have grown to $29,751. If we had dripped it, then in 2019 it would have grown from 170 shares to 258.4 shares at an account value of $31,960. That equates to 197% return without a drip and a 220% return with a drip. Now let's do Exxon. This shows us that if we invested 10 grand in 2005 and not dripped it, then we would have gotten 167 shares of Exxon, and in 2019, that would have grown to $18,041. If we had dripped it, then in 2019, it would have grown from 167 shares to 237.63 shares 
at an account value of 17648 This might surprise you that the DRIP actually returned less total returns than simply holding on to the cash from the dividends and not buying more shares. The reason for this is due to the stock price going up, meaning you kept being able to buy less shares, but then the stock price went down to where it is today. If the stock price had stayed flat or appreciated, then your DRIP would be worth more. Plus, as I mentioned, I'm only compounding the dividends annually. This equates to an 80% return without a DRIP and a 76% return with a DRIP. So now let's look at returns for our modeling for SPY, Chevron, and ExxonMobil together. We see that Chevron would slightly beat out the S&P 500 from 2005 to 2019, even though they dealt with a bad downturn in oil prices. Without that downturn in the middle, Chevron would probably have significantly performed better than the S&P 500. Exxon, on the other hand, didn't fare as well because the stock has been beaten down so much. It might be worth evaluating whether it's a value play right now if you can get it around these prices, you know, ideally under 70. Okay, now onto the number two main item I look to look at when I'm analyzing a business. Can the company cover what it owes in the next year? When analyzing a business, I like to understand it if it can cover its short-term debt obligations. I like to use the current ratio to determine that. Let's look at macro trends, which has created some nice graphs of current ratio over time. Or watch my previous videos for information on how we calculate it manually. A ratio higher than one indicates that a company will have a high chance of being able to pay off its shorter-term debt, whereas a ratio of less than one indicates that a company may not be able to pay off its shorter-term debt. I like to see ratios between 1.5 and 3%. This just means that it has $1.10 of current assets available to cover every $1 in liabilities. Ratios that are extremely high might suggest that a company is hoarding assets. Here we see Chevron is in a healthier place than Exxon. However, we can also see that Exxon has been managing for many years under a 1, so their trends indicate they should be fine. Number 3, the final main item I like to look at when analyzing a business is if it has taken on too much debt using the debt to equity ratio. Let's use what Macrotrends has. Here we can see that Chevron is at 0.16 and ExxonMobil is at 0.1. Higher debt to equity ratios tend to indicate a company or stock with higher risk to shareholders because it may not be able to generate enough cash to cover its debt obligations. It means that a company has been aggressive in financing its growth with debt. If it's too low, it's a sign the company is over relying on equity to finance the business which can be costly and inefficient. 1 to 1.5 is generally what I look for, though the ratio varies depending on the industry because some use more debt financing than others. Financial stocks that borrow money to lend money tend to have higher debt to equity ratios. Sectors that utilize capital extensively, like utilities, also tend to have debt to equity ratios that are high. So you can use the ratio to compare similar companies in similar industries. Buffett has said he likes it under 0.5. So both Chevron and Exxon look good here. Let's see if we think that they can cover their interest payments. So let's see if EBIT is at a reasonable level. EBIT is their operating profit, which is the profitability of the business before taking into account interest and taxes. Market Trends calcs EBIT for us at 21.3 bill from the income statement for Chevron and interest at minus 0.748. We see Exxon is at 31.7 billion and interest at negative 7.766. We want to see EBIT greater than or equal to three times net interest. We see both are over that, which implies that their interest payments are covered. 
It is also important to understand that debt is not always a bad thing. Financing something with debt rather than equity will often increase shareholder returns since the cost of debt is lower than the cost of equity. So remember, no absolutes in analyzing a company. Only a Sith deals in absolutes. I love Star Wars and can't wait for Episode 9 being released this December. I'm a Gen Xer, so Star Wars came out when I was a little kid. Now let's look at their cash flow statement. Here we see Chevron on the left and Exxon on the right. We want to find out if the company is bringing in real cash, which is good, or if it is generating cash by borrowing money or selling pieces of its business. So we want to see the free cash flow number. MarketWatch calculates that for us. High or rising free cash flow is often a sign of a healthy company that is doing well. So both of them are looking great these last two years, with Exxon's looking better overall, and with Chevron having an all-time record free cash flow quarter. Finally, let's check out return on assets to see how efficiently Chevron and Exxon are squeezing profit from their assets. ROAs over 5% are generally what we're looking for. The higher the ROA, the higher the asset efficiency. Let's use macro trends. Here we see that Chevron's ROA has steadily been climbing the last two years and is now over 7%. Guru Focus tells us that Chevron is ranked higher than 61% of its competitors when it comes to ROA. We see that ExxonMobil has been declining before stabilizing at around 5%. Guru Focus tells us that ExxonMobil is ranked lower than 59% of its competitors. So Chevron takes it here. It's good to be aware that Chevron has been investing into, into their communities and into charities. Over the last five years, Chevron invested $154 billion in global goods and services and more than $1 billion into global social programs. In 2018, the Global Fund directed $2.5 million from Chevron to provide antiretroviral therapy to almost 20,000 people, helping reduce the mother-to-child transmission of HIV-AIDS. Since 2008, Chevron has provided more than $60 million to the Global Fund, contributing to its success and saving more than 27 million lives. In 2018, Chevron launched a $100 million future energy fund to invest in breakthrough technologies. Early investments include an electric vehicle charging network, amongst others. They also joined the Oil and Glass Climate Initiative, OGCI, a coalition of 13 global companies cooperating on actions to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Their commitment includes a $100 million contribution to OGCI's fund to invest in technologies and businesses that should bring meaningful greenhouse gas emission reductions. Also in 2019, they added a new metric to their corporate scorecard tied to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, let's move from their financials and talk about their leadership. Looking at the top execs, the average tenure is over 33 years, which is incredible to see as that often indicates a passion as well as in-depth knowledge of their business. Any senior executive in a public company has a large compensation package such that if money was their only motivator, they would be able to retire in just a few years of working. So when I see really long tenure, it often means they don't need to work for a paycheck and they're staying there due to their passion and ability, which I like to see. Integrity is something else I want to see in management teams, and that is hard to gauge. One quick way I try to determine that is by doing a Google check on execs to see if anything negative comes up. It is very rare to find anything and companies obviously do far more extensive background checks than I do, but it makes me feel better, and there are instances of an exec who was involved in a huge scandal who then moved to another company, which surprisingly hires them. 
bad apples can spread toxicity and ultimately demise for a company. I was pleased to see Joseph Giagia as EVP of Technology, Product, and Services, which shows me they value tech. Chevron CEO is Mike Worth, a 37-plus year veteran. He has held the CEO role since 2017. He first joined Chevron as a design engineer in 1982. So it's really good that it shows you you can start at the bottom of the ladder and work out your way all the way up in a company. A good data point to gauge how he has performed is to check the stock history since he joined. Here we can see SPY in blue, ExxonMobil in purple, and Chevron in black. We see that from the time he has joined, he has outperformed ExxonMobil, but underperformed the S&P 500, though it is important to take into account the volatility we had in the oil prices in the last few years. I think it's important to call out some concerns and risks you should be aware of. The biggest risk to be aware of that impacts big oil are volatile oil and gas prices. For example, something can happen in the Middle East, which can then suddenly impact oil prices. We can see how events like the Arab oil embargo in the 70s drove up oil prices. Whenever OPEC cuts quotas, it tends to spike prices. When the global financial crisis hit, oil was crushed. So a variety of external factors can influence how Chevron does. Safety is always of tantamount focus to big oil, and if a huge accident happened with loss of life, then first it would be terrible for all those involved. And of course, it could lead to costly but probable appropriate changes to oil operations. Regulations and compliance tied to the oil industry can also have a big impact. For example, when there are large oil spills, then there can be restrictions placed on oil companies. Climate change legislation could also have a significant adverse impact to the oil industry. The Carbon Track Report says none of the largest listed oil and gas companies are making investment decisions that are in line with global climate goals and risk wasted $2.2 trillion by 2030 if governments apply stricter cuts to carbon emissions. Another risk to acknowledge is that extreme weather conditions can impact oil companies. The trend towards renewable and alternative energy is another threat to traditional oil and gas companies. But as you can see in this estimate by the Internal Energy Agency, the demands for oil and natural gas don't drastically shift away from oil and gas, thus companies like Chevron and Exxon should continue to grow and prosper. With the rise in pro-eco legislation and governmental pressure, the oil industry is under increasing legislative risks. There is also a concern that a significant portion of the public's perception towards big oil is negative but we are seeing many oil companies evolve as they look to capitalize on more popular alternative energy sources such as wind and solar. Generating electricity from solar power systems and offshore wind is becoming increasingly cheaper and cost-effective. According to the IRENA IRENA, over 80% of newly commissioned renewable energy will be cheaper than new oil and natural gas sources. So big oil probably need to adapt to remain financially viable in the very long run. As the transportation industry evolves to need less gas, oil companies will also need to evolve to flourish. One risk is depleting oil supplies around the world, though we still have massive reserves of oil and can operate for a very long time. According to BP's statistical review of world energy, global oil reserves at the end of 2012 were 1.7 trillion barrels. Given that the world consumes about 86 million barrels of crude oil per day, it would be possible to, to conclude that we'll run out of oil in 55 years 
or sooner if we increase production consumption. But beyond those already attained reserves are massive oil fields that haven't been tapped due to cost reasons. And as technology improves and as the need for oil continues, then we effectively could have more than we could consume probably during my lifetime. There has been a cry that big oil's days were over for decades, yet the need for oil in our global supply chain only continues, as does our ability to find oil in new and deeper places on Earth, as does our efficiency to extract it. Finally, Chevron faces competitive threats from companies like Exxon, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, etc., which are all looking to outperform them, get better talent, acquire better assets, and make better deals. So the big question is, is it worth buying at this price? Let's look at a discounted cash flow calculator on Guru Focus to see what they say fair price is for both Chevron and ExxonMobil. According to DCF, they are both overpriced. Chevron tangible book value based on this estimate is about $80. Exxon's is about $45. Let's look at their PEs. We see here that Chevron is at a 15.18. Exxon's at a 16.69, Chevron's go-forward PE is 14.08, and ExxonMobil's go-forward is 17.18. So they are pretty compelling PEs. It's good to know that Chevron was one of the few energy supers that had better than expected earnings results for last year, which were over 50% higher than 2017. Of course, as I previously stated, that Anadarko fee helped them out significantly. If you subtract that non-expected item along with some others, then you actually see a slight decline year over year. But their production is still increasing in their big revenue drivers, and there's a lot of upside in the Permian Basin. I think all of the data I've looked at helps me make a more informed decision. The oil industry has been beaten down for companies like Chevron and ExxonMobil. When I take everything into consideration, I actually feel that Exxon looks more compelling to me than Chevron right now, especially if you can get it in the 60s. ExxonMobil is one of the few integrated oil companies that continued increasing their dividend during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, as well as during the drop in oil prices a few years ago. Chevron has a nice PE and a really nice go forward, but I'd personally want to get more if it were under $100. Ultimately, though, you need to make the call on it. All right, let's jump into the portfolio. Scroll in. So one thing you'll notice is that Home Depot has been doing pretty well and it passed Chevron, which will happen, you know, when uh, when something's on a tear. So now officially as of today, Home Depot is my my uh, fourth stock. But this video is about Chevron. So I have 173.3 shares of Chevron. You can see this red line means that basically in the last 365 days, the price has gone down from where it was. Current PE 15.27 and forward PE 13.98. So those are really compelling PEs. Generally speaking, I like a PE around 15 for a company. And in this case, the dividend discount model says $39 would be a decent price, which is fascinating. Um, if we look at the portfolio allocation, We see that for the four stocks represented, we have retail and Home Depot, entertainment, Disney, and we have healthcare and Pfizer, and now energy and Chevron. 
And again, this will get a lot more useful and compelling when all 25 of my stocks are in there and you can see which sectors are overweighted or underweighted. Generally, they increased their, they have a $4.76 annual dividend, which is great. They generally increase their dividend around February timeframe. And the pay date for the next dividend check is on September 10th, so less than a week from now. And I mark these in yellow if it's within uh, a month of uh, the spreadsheet date that I'm, well, that I've opened the spreadsheet. Dividend yield, really strong at 4.04%, but not too strong that I get concerned about it. And the energy sector generally has slightly higher dividend yields. Three-year dividend company annual growth rate, 1.5%, and the five-year that I calculated manually, 3.54%. And now we see that the portfolio's average weighted five-year dividend compound annual growth rate is 12.56%, which is incredibly high and awesome. And the average weighted dividend yield so far for the portfolio, starting yield for the portfolio, is 2.95%. Market value on Chevron as of today, $20,424. And then the field that really matters, the what I call the passive income field, the annual return field, it is dripping $825 a year. So now the annual total for these four stocks is $2,192. Nice safe payout ratio at 59.4%. They've had over 30 years of, of uh, consecutive increase of dividend data. And so they are a dividend aristocrat. They did have a about a 10 quarter period and I'll go into a little bit later where they didn't raise the dividend but if you actually look at it it still counts as a year-over-year -year increase so that's kind of interesting and that'll be illuminating too when I kind of elaborate on that example with a visual depiction of it so you can understand what I mean by it when I say that okay the portfolio's average weighted years of increasing dividends is now at 14 years as I mentioned, it is an aristocrat at 25 consistent consecutive years of dividend increases. Beta, 1.01, so the overall portfolio beta is 0.93. Chevron has a market cap of $224 billion, And you can see the average weighted market cap for the portfolio is 231.85. I made a copy of my uh, September dividends. I track them on a monthly basis and then on a quarterly basis and then on an annual basis. So I made a copy because I deleted a bunch of rows of data that is normally in there for stocks you haven't seen yet. Um, and then as I go along, I'll, I'll kind of reveal that. And I also blacked out some cells you'll find out. So for example, the annual dividends estimate, I blacked that out. So you see that Pfizer has paid out $161.41, and then we know that Home Depot and Chevron are going to be paying, and then I have some other stocks that are going to be paying, but I'm kind of not showing those yet. Down here, I've zeroed out all the data. But ultimately what I do is I put in month by month how much I've received and 
um, I also include a 2020 estimate. So the main broker I use is E-Trade. I've used a bunch of brokerages in the past and actually still have accounts with them, which came from either 401ks or because I just wanted to try them out, including T. Rowe Price, Morgan Stanley, Vanguard, Fidelity, TD Ameritrade, and Charles Schwab. They each have their pros and cons, such as how good their desktop UI is, their mobile app, their customer service, fees, the functions of their tools, etc. I've rolled the balances in most of those accounts into E-Trade and will roll the rest in as soon as I'm able to, as I'd rather manage my own investments rather than have my options limited. One of the capabilities that E-Trade does is that it will it can estimate out what your income is going to be, what your, your dividend income is going to be for a certain time frame out. And so in this case, uh, when the month turns over, so October 1st, I'll come in and I'll look to see what the overall estimate is for my September income for a year out. And I put that in here just to see what each rate's estimate is for how the portfolio is going to grow year over year. And then I also track this, as I mentioned, on a quarterly basis. And if I scroll out a little bit, you can see... Um, this is all other stocks that will come in over time, but if you come down below, you'll see the ones that I do show, which are Chevron and Pfizer and Disney. So in this case, it's third quarter, so that's July, August, and September. So, for example, this shows that Disney, we got a payment of $100.32, so a check for $100.32 in July. And then this one shows my Pfizer payment. I just got 161. And then down here, I have a kind of a running monthly total, and I visually depict it with a graph and a 2020 estimate and a year-over-year -year increase and then an annual dividends estimate. So all those will slowly I'll unblack out as we kind of go on. These are all the other checks, the other companies you can't see quite yet. And then I also track it annually, but at this point, I'm uh, not going to go over that because that thing's just completely dark at this stage of the game. Remember, I'm not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risks. I'm only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments. Don't use this information without double-checking it and talking to someone a lot smarter than me after you completely understand it. So, I'll see you in the next video. And remember to stay positive, patient, play for the long term, keep investing in great companies, budget reasonably, and win. I know you can do it. Just like I know you can hit the subscribe, like, and bell icons and share this with others.